I'm Nareet Ben. Welcome to Life Deconstructed. When we watch and think of movies, it's all about the actors, the celebrity, or maybe the directors. The people less talked about are the producers behind the scenes, the ones putting out fires, problem solving, and quite literally making it all happen. Anahid Nazarian is one of those names. For over 30 years, she's collaborated with Francis Ford Coppola. Her screen credits include The Outsiders, The Godfather Part Three, and Bram Stoker's Dracula. She's also worked on screenplays with legendary writers like John le Carré, Mario Puzo, and Paul Schrader. A self-described woman of few words, she opens up about how she got into the industry as a librarian, what it's really like to produce a major film, and why Francis Ford Coppola is crazy, in a good way. Anahid Nazarian, thank you so much for joining me. You're very welcome. It's my pleasure. So I know you are of Armenian descent and grew up in the States. Tell me a little bit about what your childhood was like or what you were like as a kid. Well, I was born in New Jersey. I grew up in the West San Fernando Valley of Los Angeles, which at that time in the 1960s was very homogenous, very upper middle class white. This was before the big waves of immigration to Los Angeles from all over the world. And children with unusual names, like myself, were very much a novelty. And in fact, when I started school and I went into the first grade, the teacher, when she saw my name, she immediately put me into a remedial reading class. And I had been reading since the age of four. So my mother, of course, was very outraged and put an end to that immediately. But sort of that was the atmosphere of that period and that place at the time that People... I can really relate to that just, just on the name level, growing up with the name Narit in the U.S. I got a lot of blank stares yeah, and, and pauses and <laughs> mispronunciations my whole life. Yeah, certainly at that time. Um, of course, now it's very common to have unusual names and people from all areas of the world. My parents were both scientists. My father was a chemistry professor and my mother was a microbiologist before she came a, became a stay-at-home mom. And so education in our family, as with all Armenian families, was very, very important. If you got anything less than a B, it was unacceptable. High pressure. High pressure. You don't bring shame on your family. You strive for the highest in these sort of things, education. I was a B student. Okay. I was a great reader, which I credit for getting me that B average. And I was into music. My father was an avid amateur violinist, and he made all of his children take music lessons from a very early age. We did music like other families do sports now. Hmm. It was going from one lesson or rehearsal or concert to another. Does growing up in that scientific environment and the high pressure of good grades and everything mean there was also sort of a pressure to do a specific job or get into a specific line of works, certain things that were accepted or not? Well, music was accepted if it was classical music. But other than that, no, it would have to be something of a high level, um, law or medicine. I'm sure that's common with a lot of ethnic groups (laughs) to have their children be in those professions. I played the flute. It was pretty much the only thing I was really good at at the time. And so I majored in music at UCLA. I played in a lot of different groups. I also took up the saxophone and bass guitar. 
Looking back, I sort of regret being a music major because having to do all the rehearsals and classes and performances, it didn't leave you a lot of free time or even other classes to explore in other fields. Like I really liked history and I would have done more of that. But being music was very focused and um, didn't allow you to do that so much. Yeah, full commitment. So if you were studying music and you came from this space of, you know, you can either do A or B, how do you first even dip your toe into the film world? I mean, was that at all on your radar? It was not at all on my radar. I expected and wanted to be a professional musician. When I got out of college, I started playing in a number of groups, rock groups mostly, but I also played in a couple of symphony orchestras. So it was funny, during the day I'd do orchestra rehearsals and the night I'd be playing with a rock group somewhere. Hmm. And it was pretty much playing everything that paid me. But it was very sort of not very frequent, let's say that. I was always looking for work. It was the life of a musician, you know. And after a while, I sort of got tired of the life of always looking for work. And also playing music, popular music, meant usually you were working at night, late night. Right. And I'm not a night person. And we'd finish at 2 or 3 a.m. and then have to pack up and move all the equipment. I'd get home about 4 or 5 a.m. Oh. And I was just getting pretty tired of it. I loved the music, you know. And I loved playing, and I would play anything. Um, I, I never forget, I was playing bass guitar with a pretty hard rock band at a dive bar in San Bernardino, and my father is sitting at the bar thinking, this is what I paid all of those years of <laughs> classical music lessons for. This was not exactly what he had in mind when he said classical. Not what he had in mind. But I, I loved it, but I knew I'd never be really a top player. And so I thought, well, what else can I do? Maybe something I can do during the day and still occasionally play music. And so I decided to go to library school. I had always loved books. And during college, I had worked part-time in a public library, just a clerk. But I learned the Dewey Decimal System. So I thought this shouldn't be so hard. I'll just go to library school, get a degree, and then uh, get some good day job. Well, I went to library school and it was a disaster. Why? It was all about theory. I never even heard the words Dewey Decimal the whole year. And I, and I barely made it through the first year. <laughs> so and the second year, you had to do an internship. So I thought, this is great. I'll get into a real work situation, get away from all of this information theory and all of this esoteric classes that I had to do. So yeah, you're looking for something practical. I got a job as an intern at a movie research library. Now, back in the day, all of the studios had their own libraries. And these libraries were to supply research to mostly art and costume departments. At that time, most movies weren't made on location. They were made in a studio, either on a back lot or on a stage. So if they were making a movie that was set in Paris, they would build Paris on stages or wherever. So they needed research on what things would look like, you know, the street signs, the fire hydrants, the clothes people would wear, that sort of thing. So these studio libraries, that's what they did. They supplied the information for that. So I thought that would be fun. And I started working for a woman who had just moved her library to Francis Coppola's new studio in, in Hollywood. And I started interning there, and it was very interesting. And I just liked doing the research, the kind of crazy questions you'd get asked and stuff like that. Yeah, that sounds like a pretty cool twist on research and being a librarian to get to put your foot straight into Hollywood, really, and recreate life and details for film. It was very, very interesting. And, you know, I still wasn't interested in movies at all or even filmmaking, but I liked working in a library and I liked working with creative art directors and costume designers who would come in and ask for things and you'd supply them with the photos or imagery that they needed. So Francis was there making his movie, One from the Heart, 
and they needed a tape librarian, someone to organize all the video cassettes. Now, this was the first film that had been edited on video. This was 1981. Oh, wow. The first film. So they end, were ending up with hundreds and hundreds of these cassettes that would just be labeled haphazardly and not in any order. So I was hired to put all those things in order at, uh, for $4 an hour. I was really excited I was getting paid, and it was part-time. And then the film, One from the Heart, came out, and it was a big disaster. I mean, a huge disaster financially. Francis lost the studio, and he decided to move back to Northern California, where he had an office in San Francisco and his home in Napa Valley. And someone had told him there was a young library school student working on the lot, and so he asked to meet with me. And the first words he ever said to me were, I want you to organize my brain. <laughs> uh, well, that's a little daunting. Yeah, and for an artist, a director like that, that could mean a lot of clutter. <laughs> he was very nice. Of course, I was very nervous when I went in there and to hear the words, I want you to organize my brain. You know, that's a little, well, okay, what is this? And he said, I want to start my own research library at my home in Napa Valley. Do you think that might be something you'd be interested in doing? And I just said, yes. And I had a few classes to go in library school, but I just immediately dropped out. I got in my car and I drove seven hours north to San Francisco. And this ends up becoming sort of like a, a legendary library of his. I mean, a massive, massive archive. Yeah, uh, all being run by a library school dropout. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think as the tech giants have proved, you don't need a degree to succeed in any one field. <laughs> So we built this library from scratch. Um, we started with about 3,000 books of his, put it in an old carriage house here on his property amidst the vineyards. It was very beautiful, is very beautiful. And we had a sound mixing studio upstairs. So they were mixing all the sound to his films while I was researching on the middle level and the bottom floor was a winery. That sounds like a pretty so good setup. one building, <laughs> all of these activities were going on. It was great. I loved it. So you were just sort of, I guess, absorbing more and more of the film world by osmosis as, you know, when you were working there, just getting exposed to things that I guess you had never imagined before. Yes, it was all new to me. I still wasn't that interested in movie making. I just like, you know, putting together a research library and being in charge and working on not just his films, but all other films too. I worked on a lot of films in the 80s and 90s, um, before internet came along, and people were able to do a lot of that work themselves. But uh, I did the first Pirates of the Caribbean, Spider-Man, even the Flintstones and things like that, scary movie. I mean, anything that had an art department that was building sets or had costumes, they'd call and send a list and say, we need pirate ships, we need torture devices. We need uh, hairstyles of pirates, you know, that kind of thing. So a lot of times we learn more what we want to do by actually doing, by being exposed to something, by process of elimination, I think is a big thing to learn also what you don't want to do. So how did this end up in a road to actually producing? Because that's something that you've done obviously for decades on so many different films and is definitely shift from where you began. Yeah, well, between researching and producing, there were a number of steps as well. For sure. Pretty early on, I started to help Francis with his writing as first just typing it up and making corrections. And then it evolved more into script editing. It took me about four or five years before I was comfortable working with him and before I could start really giving opinions and suggestions and 
in a very honest way. But he was open to it. Very open. That's interesting because I think probably a lot of writers and directors are not necessarily so willing for, you know, to have commentary, never mind someone brand new. A lot of writers are like that. And I worked with many other writers during that period. And some were very open to suggestion and even asked for it all the time. And others didn't want to change a comma to a semicolon, you know. Um, but Francis has always been very open to suggestion. And he was, I'm sure, open to it from the very beginning of when I started working with him. But it was me that was hesitant about it. Mm -hmm. So I started working with him on screenplays. And that led to working with many other writers on screenplays who had some connection of their project to our company whether we were producing it or had bought the rights or something. Yeah, I mean, down the line you worked, I don't know where this falls in the timing, but with writers like Mario Puzo, who's behind The Godfather, John le Carré, the, the legendary John le Carré, Paul Schrader, who did Taxi Driver and Raging Bull. So this is like, I mean, is, is this work on, on screenwriting something that was just kind of peppered in along the way? Because that's a whole field in itself. Yeah, that was actually something I spent a lot of time on working weeks with writers. I mean, John Le Carre came up here for two or three weeks. We worked on a project. He was wonderful. Mario Puzo, of course, was incredible, but we worked remotely with him. He would send his typed pages here and we'd send things back. But I enjoyed this very much, working with writers. Of course, I had been a great reader and loved books, as I said. And um, it was a wonderful experience and still is. I still work with writers. Of course, Francis, but also his children, Sophia notably. Mm -hmm. and, what is that um, collaboration process like when someone, you know, it's kind of their baby, but you're coming from the outside and then working on something that I would imagine is kind of like a sensitive material for them. But I, I mean, as you said, it depends who it is. But what does that work like? You know, I've always tried to be very, very honest. Like people are always asking me to read scripts. And unless I know them very well, and it's a close friend, I'll always say no, because it's a job. You know, sure. it's like you wouldn't ask a doctor to just evaluate your condition for free and just spend three hours of his time on your case. Sure. You know, but see, people seem to feel that reading their script is something, oh, that'll be fine, you'll just do it. Yeah. It's not like that. So when, when I do decide to read a script of, of someone from outside the company, I tell them, look, you know, I'm going to read it and I'm probably going to rip it to shreds. And they say, oh, yeah, yeah, I want that. I want that. I want that. Okay. But then do they so really want that? So that's what I that? do. And then, <laughs> but then when they get the, my notes, what, you know, the they become all defensive. And this, look, you ask for my opinion, you know, you can do with it what you like. But in terms of the Coppolas, they've always asked my opinion on their scripts or what do you think of this or what about here? What could we do here? So it's very collaborative with them and very comfortable just because I've been with that family for so long now. You know, that is one thing that I'm curious to know, especially since you bring it up, but I'm sure others are too, is what is it like working with Francis Coppola? Not just once, but many, many times over. He's a crazy man. <laughs> He's a crazy idea man. At least once a week, he'll, he'll call me into his office and say, you want to hear a crazy idea? And the thing about Francis is they're not just ideas. He's willing to take a risk and make them happen. People are coming up with ideas and stuff all the time, but he really follows through on them. He goes for it. He just jumps in there. I mean, we are two opposites in how our minds think. He thinks very spatially. And I think things in a logical, straightforward, you know, like A, B, C, D, E. He thinks like B, D, C, <laughs> F, G, you know, whatever, totally not in order. And then and, it's your uh, job to put things 
in order and make them happen. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's not that it doesn't matter to him. He, he just wants somebody else to deal with that. So I basically put things in order for him. And he has the imagination of a nine-year-old child. He's interested in everything. I mean, history, philosophy, especially science and technology. He's always reading and learning. I mean, he's eighty, going to be 82 years old. And every day he's telling me stuff he learns in books. That's incredible, you though. Know, he just never stops. To preserve the childlike imagination that so many of us either lose or become kind of disconnected from over time. Absolutely. Or just stop learning because we get in a comfort zone or feel like we've seen it all or something. You'll never be in a comfort zone. Never. Has that helped in pushing you out of, by force, out of your comfort zone by, by default? A little bit, a little bit, but it's just pretty much trying to keep up with all of his crazy ideas because then he'll want information on something and a year later it's a product. Like he was the first one to think of putting wine in a can. Really? I mean, yeah, he called me in his office one day and just held up this little cardboard tube and he says, look at this. Uh, what is that? He goes, it's going to be wine in a can. I think it would be great. You're right, wine in a can. I mean, come on. <laughs> and so a year later, it came up with the Sophia wine in a can. And it was a huge hit, sparkling wine in a can. And now wine in a can is very, very common. But that was his idea in the first. That's so inspiring, though, to crazy ideas, but then actually to follow through. And like you were saying, like that thinking that anything is possible. Anything is possible. And he, for example, in the 19, I think it was the 80s, late 80s, he said, as he always does, come on down here. Actually, he threw a rock at the window. Before he had a phone in his office, he would just throw a rock at the window at the library to get my attention because <laughs> he didn't want a phone in his office. So I'd come down there. He goes, you want to hear a crazy idea? You want to see something? I mean, this and is I, a rhetorical question, right? It's rhetorical. It's just on the sounding board. <laughs> so he goes, look at this. And he's holding up two pieces of cardboard with a hinge between them like this. And he opens it up. And I go, what is that? And he had drawn in there a little keyboard. He goes, this is a phone. And I go, what are you talking about? This is a phone. This was before cell phones. Oh, my God. This is before mobile phones. He goes, yeah, you could just open it up like a flip top, and it would be a phone. I go, yeah, right, Francis. Okay. He goes, I'm going to show Mr. Morita of Sony this. <laughs> so like, and then 10 years later, so there's cell phones. So know? we all know Francis Coppola is a filmmaker, but it turns out... <laughs> There are a lot of other random things in our lives that he might oh, have a yeah. hand in. He can see the future. He really can. It sounds inspiring to be, you know, to get to work with someone like that. And, you know, even if it's very daunting, I imagine when you hear that, it's a little bit of bracing yourself like, oh, God, what's it going to be this time? But yeah, it's always with trepidation when, <laughs> when he says that, you know, you want to hear a crazy idea. It's like, oh, here we go again. Do I? Do I have a choice? <laughs> no. <laughs> So how does that transition then into producing? I mean, you're getting more and more involved in nuts and bolts of filmmaking. And really, at what point do you get a sense of what you want to do in this field? I didn't get that sense for about 20 years. <laughs> After a period of working on screenplays, I became a script supervisor on the set. It's a very complicated and demanding job. You're responsible for keeping track of all of the shots oh, man. and all of the continuity the matching of actors. Continuity in film when everything is shot out of order. Wherever you see like on IMDb uh, goofs, you know. <laughs> yeah, or the, the famous Game of Thrones Starbucks cup. Yeah, exactly. Things like that. Um, but at its basis, it's trying to get actors to match their action with the dialogue so that the editor can cut it and it's a seamless scene. So that's a really difficult job. I never wanted to do it. Francis made me do it on his film. 
and I was terrified. But I went to train for a few days with a very experienced script supervisor. And the early days on the set, uh, the crew was very tentative because they know it's a really responsible position and just have a newbie thrown in there is, is asking a lot. But they were very helpful. And I sort of got through the first film, learned a lot, made a lot of mistakes. And then the second one was easier and the third one easier. And it's still a really, really tough job. And in fact, I still do the job on the films that I produce. Wow. So I'm not only the producer, but also the script supervisor on Francis's last three films, which is daunting to say the least. A big job. So I was doing that, and then I think that sometimes when a person is really capable in a middle-level job, sometimes employers will unconsciously just want to keep them there sure. because they're filling that position so capably. Yeah, it's comfortable for them. Right, and you look happy and you enjoy the work. But after 20 years of being a res researcher, script editor, script supervisor, I wanted to, I, I wouldn't say advance, but I wanted to do something on a higher level, and so I decided to make a film on my own. I had worked on other people's films so long, I thought, well, you have all this knowledge, all this experience, and importantly, all these contacts. Why not try to make your own film? Well, nothing prepared me for the reality of making a small, low-budget film by myself. I really learned some very tough lessons, and I made every mistake possible. What are some things that... I used my own money. Mistake number one. Never do that. Uh, I hired important crew from word of mouth only without really checking out their work and equally their personalities. I learned that you have to hire your crew like you're casting your film. It's that important. Mm. I didn't have a realistic budget and I didn't stick to it. I thought I could do everything myself because I wanted it done right when I should have hired a few people, which would have saved money and my sanity <laughs> in the long run, things like that. Yeah, trial by fire trial by fire. So I got the film made. And then one of the actors who was in it asked me to produce his film. So I did that. And I made less mistakes <laughs> the second time around. Certainly, it was a easier experience. But I find that I make mistakes in everything. You know, sure. I think we all do. And if we don't say that, okay, that's going to happen. But how can I learn from it? Well, what's the point? You know, well, was it The Godfather Part 3 that was the first Coppola you worked on as a producer? No. Is that right? No. Which was? Um, Francis had seen these two little films that I produced, and he was impressed because, not because they were great films, but because they looked really good, they were up on the screen, and they cost very, very little. So this had been about nine years since he had made a film. The last film he made was in 1996 called The Rainmaker. And he decided to make a very small personal film using his own money, shoot it in Romania, and have me produce it. It was called Youth Without Youth. So here I was thrust into this country I knew nothing about with a few million to make a film that should look like 60 million because it was a very <laughs> big period film. And 60 million is what an average movie costs in Hollywood these days. So I went and I did it, and it was the hardest thing I've ever done. How the hell do you even know where to begin with something like that? Well, again, you're not alone in this. Sure. I had a number of friends who advised me along the way, but the first thing that I had to do was make a budget based on the script and how many days it would take to shoot. And movie budgets are really, really complicated. They list every single cost from the lunches to the portable bathrooms to the locations to the actors to all the crew's fees and everything. Movie budget will be 50 or 60 pages. 
of details. So I did that. We went to Romania. We started hiring local crew. We were all local crew there, except for two Americans and two makeup artists from the UK. And, you know, there were just so many difficulties along the way, not just to make a cheap little film look great, but to do it in a country that's only 15 years out of communism. Right. Not like shooting in L.A. Not like shooting in L.A. And the crews were very good technically, but I found that the creative people were very reluctant to give any sort of opinion on anything. It's really hard to change the social structure of somebody or their thought process, let me put it that way, who have been conditioned to think a certain way for a long, long time. So they were just saying, just tell me what to do, we'll do it. I'll go, but what do you think about this? Do you have an idea of that? No. Yeah, it's like cultural habits of feedback and what you're allowed to say or not. Yeah, if you go to some place like Italy, they tell you their opinion whether you want it or not. They <laughs> yeah. just, oh, you should do that. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, so I'm, very, I'm very, very familiar different. with that category. <laughs> so very different from that. You know, a lot of times I get asked a question, what does the producer do? And in every field where production is involved, whether it's news, which is more my background, or TV shows, films, etc., production is really, you know, the engine that makes things happen and make things work but we don't hear about it so much we don't really know the details of what goes into that and we don't hear about the people who are really have their hands on the strings in many ways yeah that's really true you know you go to a movie nowadays you'll see at the beginning of the film in the credits maybe 14 or 15 producers listed of course it wasn't that way when i started it was maybe two or three but there are many tasks i mean the producer can develop the script a producer can find the money they can get an actor or directors attached. And if they just do one of those things, they could get a credit as, as a producer. In my case, sort of encompass the whole process from start to finish of working on the script, signing up the actors, hiring the crew, making the budget, seeing that, that the production was on track every day, making all the deals with the locations and the vendors, hiring and firing people you know, dealing with the post-production, the editing, the music, making all those deals, making sure everything stays on track. So I did follow it from the very beginning to the end. Oh, that's a massive amount of coordination. I mean, what was it that drew you to it? I mean, obviously, it was a gradual thing that put you in that space after having gained all these other skills and knowledge. But what do you think either sort of makes you a good producer? What makes a good producer in general? And what makes you love it? Or maybe sometimes hate it? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I didn't choose to go into it. Uh, Francis asked me to do it. I'm not the sort of person that is very ambitious, I would say. But again, I've sort of been able to determine when the road splits, following that track might be the best thing for me. And I didn't resist it. You know, I didn't say, oh, I don't really want to do that. I don't want to uproot my life and go live in Romania for a year and a half. Just on that note, what was it like to uproot again and again? You're going to a different locations and setting things up and spending a long time there. It sounds really exciting. I'm sure it also has impact on personal life and that kind of thing. Very much so. You're living the life of a nomad, which some people in the industry love it. They just go from location to location. And when you're producing or in production from the beginning, you're not just there for the shooting. You're there for three or four months before to prepare. Right. You're there for the three or four months to shoot. And in our case, we did all the editing and sound work there afterwards. So you're there for a year or half a year afterwards. So it's really an uprooting of your personal life, your home life. You don't see your friends, you don't see your family. You have to close down your house for a year. 
you know, all of those sort of things, some people are okay with it. When you're young, it's great. It's all in a big adventure and you love it. Yeah. As you get older, it just becomes not so fun, that part of it. Like everything depends on what space you are in your life. Yeah, that's right. In the course of all of those years, really, if we're to zoom out for a second, just think about Hollywood still, even if you are in this very kind of specific group, which sounds like a really fantastic group of collaborators. So much has been said and revealed, obviously, about Hollywood over the past couple of years, about the past decades, what it was like for women in particular. What was the atmosphere like for women? Is that something you encountered as an issue in any way? I would say until the early 2000s, it was very much a boys club on the set. I never worked on a film that had a woman in the camera, grip, electrical, or who was an assistant director. The few women who worked on the set would always be in costume, wardrobe, hair, makeup, the script supervisor like me, maybe a few in the art department. But 95% of the crew on the set was were men. One of the benefits was that I think it was one of the only professions where there was never a line to the women's bathroom. <laughs> Big <laughs> advantage, I gotta say. Yeah, now that's changed. And of course, there are a lot more women on the set, but it's still hard for them to break into these traditional male categories. Mm. Also because things like camera, grip electric, the way people get jobs a lot is because they're a brother of somebody or they know somebody or a friend of somebody. Oh, so yeah. it just sort of perpetuates that. Right. With 95% of the people on set male, was it ever an uphill battle to be heard in a certain way or to have your opinions legitimized? Or in many cases, I, I assume your orders because the producer is also calling a lot of the shots, telling people where to go and when and why. Yeah, uh, never. That's good. I think definitely in Romania, it was harder. They weren't used to a woman giving orders or being the boss. And uh, that was a little more difficult working with the men, but on U.S. sets, never. Also because they knew I was sitting right next to Francis and he had given me the authority and they're not going to do anything or say anything. Yeah. I had nothing but great experiences with all the men on the cruise. They're very helpful to me. What are some of the things that you learned from them or maybe from Francis in particular, who seems to have been a mentor in many ways, correct me if I'm wrong, but also sort of not just a mentor, but also sort of guiding you to, I think you can do this, like I'd like you to do that, and pulling you into higher and higher spaces. Yeah, definitely. He's been a mentor. I mean, it's hard to spend 40 years working for someone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and not pick and, up a few things. <laughs> and not pick up a few things. I have to say, though, that I think that my former life as a musician was very valuable because being a musician, it teaches you and it forces you to listen to people. When you're a musician playing in a group, uh, the whole quality of the piece depends on musicians and everybody listening to each other. And I think it's the same thing in any creative group effort. You know, just to shut up for a minute and let somebody say what they're going to say and really consider what they're going to say. I got that from music. From Francis, I got the lesson among many that you have to really be flexible in your thinking. There's always a way to make something happen. And you have to just try to make that be a force in everything that you do, that nothing is impossible. There's always a way to make something happen or close to something happen. Another thing would be that rewriting is very important. Embrace the rewrite. Embrace the rewrite. He's always said that, you know, his success in filmmaking didn't come to him because he had some magical gifts, but because he was willing to try things out, rewrite, steal ideas, go in strange directions, and discover and make use of accidents, and above all, trust his intuition. That's the most important thing. 
So I try to keep those things in mind whenever I'm faced with the daunting task of producing a movie. (laughs) That sounds like it ties in also to your own life experience in what you were saying with the crossroads and that if something leads to a way that you didn't necessarily plan or expect, you know, to be open to go with it. That's right. And to see, see where it leads. That's right. I mean, otherwise, I'd probably, I don't know what I would be doing, maybe working in a public library somewhere in Los Angeles or retired. Yeah. <laughs> but art never sleeps, so I'm still working. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're available. You're on call all the time. Yeah. I can only imagine. Yeah. I want to just take a step further, the, the sort of lessons learned, because producing, executive producing, as you pointed out, is such a high level of managing logistics and people. And I imagine correct me if I'm wrong, because I don't have, you know, film experience, but that on a film set, managing the people can mean a lot of different personalities. Are there some kind of leadership or management lessons or tips that you picked up along the way? Because that's a really intense management environment. It is very intense. And it's hard because, you know, a film set has or film crew, because there are a lot of people behind the scenes that aren't on the set. Of course, they're all different personalities. It's not important whether you like somebody or not. You know, I may not like somebody, but if they're doing their job very well, that's great. That's fine. It shouldn't be about personalities. It should be about what's best for the film. And what's best for the film is that we get up on the screen what the director wants for as low a cost as possible. And personalities don't matter in that. You know, there are always disagreements on the set if the assistant director isn't getting along with the DP or that sort of thing. And I've been in some of those situations where you have to try to smooth things over and say, look, guys, we just have to work this way. And if you can't work this way, I'm going to get people who will. So you have to be tough, but fair, like in any business. But, you know, I always try to be nice. That's sort of my mantra is just be nice and try to give 110%. Always try to improve. And I keep a low profile, too. I'm not there out on the set saying, hey, you do this, you do that. What are you doing over there? I'm just sort of silently observing the process. And then when we take a break, I may go and say something to say somebody, but I'm pretty much a person of few words. So when I do speak, I think people take it a little more seriously than somebody who's just like some kind of jock running around the set. Yeah, yeah, you're not there for the show. Yeah, I'm not at all. What might you tell someone who would want to get, and maybe women in particular, who'd want to get into the field in film in any of those really elements behind the scenes, whether it's producing or otherwise, especially now from your vantage point of working in the field for so many decades, different places, different periods of time where I'm sure the industry has changed so dramatically. Well, filmmaking, when I say filmmaking, that also means like TV and everything else. It's really, really compartmentalized right now, made up of very, very specific positions. So, you know, young people say, oh, I wanna be a filmmaker. Well, what does that mean? Do you wanna be a writer? Do you want to be a director? Do you want to be an editor? Do you want to be a costume designer? So I tell people, look, try to learn about every part of the business if you can, just a little bit, just read about it. And then try to zero in on what you think you would be really good at and enjoy doing. Don't just say, I want to be a filmmaker. Yes, you can take your iPhone and go out and make a movie and it would look good. But if you really want to make a career or profession about it, I think you do have to specialize. There's a tendency, I think, with those kinds of fields, especially with filmmaking, though there are some others too, of just thinking about the glamorous reputation. But then there's, you know, the title and the reputation, then there's the actual nuts and bolts, like the actual, what is this actual work like? The actual work is work. A standard production shooting day is a 12-hour day. So it is a lot of work. And like all the arts, 
when you're off the clock, you're not really off the clock. It's art, you know, it's, it's creative work and the work continues when you're talking about it at a dinner or thinking about what you're going to do the next day or what the next day is going to be like. And then you're dreaming about it. And then you wake up and the first thing you do is you look out the window to see what the weather is. So it's going to be a good shooting day outside or a bad shooting day outside. So before I let you go, my question that I am always want to hear from everyone, if you were to sit down for coffee with your 20-year-old self, maybe before your musician self, your UCLA self, whatever period it might be uh, back then, what might you tell her or advise her today? I would say try not to be so shy and be more open to learning things and having things available to you that you can take advantage of and not be just so happy sitting in one place, but try to really expand your horizons and see everything that's possible around you and don't be afraid to jump in it. I know I followed the track of being led into various jobs, but it wasn't my initiative to do those things. And I think that I might have had a different experience if I had actually taken the initiative on more things and to not be afraid to do that. Yeah, that seems to be a running theme I hear from a lot of women is to not be so hesitant and to go for opportunities and take risks. And it's easy to think, in my experience at least, and I think what I hear from a lot of people around me, you know, where every decision seems like some sort of end-all be-all win as in the grand scheme of things. It's really not a big deal and just one more experience that can lead you to something else. Like in your experience, you know, you said music ended up playing such a key role in helping you figure out how to do everything else after that. That's very true. Music was a previous life, but I really did learn from it valuable lessons. Everything comes together in the end in what we do. That's right. Well, Anna Hayden Nazarian, it's such a pleasure to talk to you and to hear and, and learn from your experiences. Thank you. I know you said you're a woman of few words, so I appreciate you sharing a few more with me. <laughs> Thank you for asking me. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe and send me your thoughts, any questions that you want answered or women that you want to hear from on Twitter at Nareet Ben or Instagram at Life Deconstructed Pod. And coming up next week, Brooke Goldstein is a powerhouse attorney, an award-winning filmmaker, a founder, a mom of three, and also a great guest at dinner parties. Soon after settling on human rights law, she founded the nonprofit Children's Rights Institute, followed up by the Lawfare Project. We caught up on how making a documentary about terrorism steered her to human rights, running businesses with three kids, and her tried and true tips for stepping up your public speaking game. It's about learning from your mistakes, changing your behavior, and getting stronger, obviously, to continue to take risks. Life is all about risk-taking and how you measure those risks and what you learn when you fail and what you gain when you win. I'm Nuri Ben. We'll see you next week on Life Deconstructed.